turn with me, please, to look. If you have a church Bible, that's page 1055. And as you'll see on the screen this morning, we're going to pick up at chapter 20, verse 20. And we'll follow the text through to chapter 21, verse 4. If you're able to remember back a few weeks, you may recall that we're in a section of Luke's Gospel where Jesus' authority is being questioned. In chapter 19, he arrived in Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and he was welcomed by the crowds that day as the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Then Jesus marched into the temple in Jerusalem, and he acted like he was in charge of the temple. He threw out the merchants, and then we were told he started teaching in the temple every day. So it's not surprising that this provoked a reaction from the leaders of the Jews. After all, they saw themselves as being in charge of the temple, and in charge of teaching about God, and interpreting the scriptures. When we last turned to look at the baptism service, we saw how the leaders began to challenge Jesus. Who gave you authority to do these things? But they didn't have much success in their challenge. And so in our passage this morning, we're going to see them trying a new tactic. They send others to try and do their work for them. And we also see a new group of leaders joining in, a group called the Sadducees. We haven't heard from them before. So our passage shows us renewed attempts to challenge Jesus' authority. But what we find is more evidence that Jesus has authority. Our passage teaches us three truths. And then it shows us how we're to respond to these truths. First of all, we're taught that Jesus has authority, wisdom, and knowledge with regard to this life. Second, Jesus has authority, wisdom, and knowledge with regard to the life to come. And thirdly, Jesus is Lord. And finally, we'll see the response that Jesus is looking for. So first of all, in chapter 20, verses 20 to 26, Jesus has wisdom, has authority, wisdom, and knowledge with regard to this life. Chapter 20 says, or chapter 20, verse 20. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose portrait and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public. And astonished by his answer, They became silent. 
At this point, the teachers of the law and the chief priests are no longer challenging Jesus directly. We'll see later that they're still there listening to him. But now they send spies to speak for them. That way, the leaders hope, if it all goes wrong, they won't end up being embarrassed again. Verse 20 tells us these spies pose as honest inquirers. But their real motive is to catch Jesus out so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. The governor here means the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And this shows the depth of the leader's hatred of Jesus. The Jews hated the Romans. The Romans were the occupying power. Every day, the Romans were a reminder to the Jews that Israel was not its own master. The nation was under Roman rule. And yet, the closer Jesus gets to the cross, the more we're going to see the Jewish leaders allying themselves with Rome against Jesus. In fact, John's Gospel tells us that when Pilate referred to Jesus as the king of the Jews, the chief priests replied, we have no king but Caesar. As much as the Jewish leaders hated Rome, they hate Jesus more. Jesus has claimed authority over Israel, but the leaders prefer to be under Rome's authority. And this is something that has played itself out again and again in history. People who are normally enemies will unite in their opposition to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus claims authority over their lives. And we want to be the captains of our own ship. The ultimate division in this world is not between different nations or people groups or political parties. It's between those who are for Jesus and those who are against him. And so often, people who are normally bitter enemies will unite in their opposition to Jesus. The spy's mission is to get Jesus in trouble with the Romans. And they try to corner him with a question about the Roman poll tax in verse 22. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? When we hear the term poll tax today, most of us probably think of Margaret Thatcher. But the idea of a poll tax was around long before that. And financially, the Roman poll tax wasn't really a big deal for most people. Every adult male had to pay the Romans a denarius a year. That was a day's wage, roughly. So it was easily manageable for most people once a year. But the Jews got worked up about the poll tax because it was just one more humiliating reminder that Rome was in charge of them. As far as the Jewish leaders are concerned, they have Jesus in a corner here. If he says, yes, pay the tax, the crowd are going to turn against him. If he says no, the Romans are going to go after him as a revolutionary. And that's exactly what the Jewish leaders want. But verse 23 says Jesus saw through their duplicity. He was well aware of what they were trying to do. And he shows that he is not in the least cornered by their question. In verse 24, show me a denarius whose portrait and inscription are on it. 
Jesus says to these spies, do you happen to have a denarius? Do you use the currency of the Romans? You who are trying to trap me, do you buy and sell using the Romans' money? You who claim to hate Rome, are your pockets filled with Roman coins? Before Jesus even answered, he has already shown up these spies in front of the crowd. He doesn't have Roman money in his pocket, but they do. Jesus' opponents might claim to be the defenders of Israel, but they're part of the Roman system. They carry Caesar's portrait in their pockets. And so Jesus says, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. In other words, Jesus says, the money in your pocket has Caesar's face on it. So if he asks for it, go ahead and give it back to him. But more importantly, make sure you give to God what has his portrait and inscription on it. Jesus is not only slipping out of the Jews' trap here. He's reminding them that whatever they owe to Caesar, they owe much more to God. It seems likely Jesus is reminding the Jews of God's words in Genesis chapter 1. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Jesus says, yes, the coins in your pocket might belong to Caesar, but your life belongs to God. You are made in his image. You have his inscription on you. He owns you. Give back to him what is his. Verse 26 says, Astonished by his answer, they became silent. No wonder they were astonished. They thought they had Jesus cornered. But not only did they fail to corner him, he has turned the situation into a massive rebuke to them. They claim to be religious. They claim to be God's people. But their lives are fully bound up with the systems of this world. They've lost a true sense of the life they were made for. Back in chapter 16, Luke told us the Jewish leaders loved money. They have no trouble producing a denarius, that's a day's wage, from their pocket. But here Jesus reminds them that their lives belong to God. What is this little section teaching us? It teaches us that Jesus has authority, wisdom, and knowledge with regard to this life. The Bible is not a pie-in-the-sky book. It's fully aware of the realities of life. Jesus is fully aware of the realities of life. Every day we have to deal with earthly authorities and systems, governments, bosses, teachers, We have to give attention to work and bills and lots of other things that are all bound up with this world. How much time or money do we owe to this or that? So many things make claims on us every day. And Jesus says, fine, that's just a fact of life. But realize who has ultimate claim on your life. God's stamp of ownership is on you. Your life is his. Give to God what is God's. 
So God's claim on us goes way beyond an hour here or a check there. It means we need to live out the command of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Jesus has authority, wisdom, and knowledge with regard to this life. If we listen to him, if we follow him, of course we're still going to interact with the systems of this world. But we're not going to be consumed and given over to the systems of this world. We're going to live in the knowledge that our lives belong to God. Sometimes people say that their company or their employer isn't content with getting 40 or 50 hours a week from them. Their company wants their soul as well. And if we're not following Jesus, that's what tends to happen. It might not be the company that gets our soul, but our souls will be given over to some other part of this present world that is passing away. Only Jesus can show us how to live with proper priorities in this life. Only Jesus can prevent us throwing our lives away on things that have no lasting value. When the spies came to Jesus, they were trying to flatter him before they caught him out. But those spies spoke better than they knew when they said in verse 21, you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Only Jesus can show us how this life is meant to be lived. We must begin by giving our lives back to the God who owns us. So Jesus has silenced these spies sent by the leaders. But now another group of Jewish leaders decide to challenge him, the Sadducees. We don't know too much about the Sadducees. But we do know they were a powerful group at this time in Israel. And we know three of their distinctive beliefs. They did not believe in a future resurrection. They did not believe in angels. And they only accepted as scripture the part of the Old Testament written by Moses. That's the first five books of the Old Testament, known as the Torah or the Pentateuch. So no resurrection, no angels, and only the bit of the Old Testament that Moses wrote. Keep those things in mind as we read this from verse 27. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels." They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. 
For he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. This section shows us that Jesus has authority, wisdom, and knowledge with regard to the life to come. By this point, Jesus has been teaching for several years. And he has made clear he believes in a future day of resurrection when men and women will be judged. So the Sadducees concoct this little scenario for him, intending to show that the idea of resurrection is ridiculous. So in verse 28, they quote from Moses. Specifically, it's from the book of Deuteronomy. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. There are some very straightforward reasons for that law. It was intended to make sure widows were provided for by giving them children. It was intended to make sure the property stayed in the same family by producing an heir for the dead man. And also it was intended to make sure that families and clans in Israel didn't die out. Those were all good reasons for this law. But the Sadducees don't believe that Moses accepted the idea of resurrection. And they think they can prove it from this law. Because if there is a resurrection, the family in their little scenario is going to face a very awkward situation. Jesus replies by making four simple points. There is a resurrection. It's not just a continuation of this life. It's something you'd better prepare for. And Moses certainly did believe in it. Look again at verse 34. Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. Jesus says to the Sadducees, Sure, your scenario would be awkward if the life to come was just a continuation of this one. But it's not. It's different. Human marriage is an institution for this life. Elsewhere, the New Testament tells us the main purpose of human marriage is to teach the world about the marriage between Christ and his church. That's explained in Ephesians chapter 5. In the life to come, the marriage that counts will be the one between Christ and his church. That's the only eternally enduring marriage. And so, Jesus says, the life to come is something you need to prepare for. In verse 35, he mentions those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead. That age means the one to come when this one is over. So who will be considered worthy of the life to come? Well, we don't have to guess the answer to that. The New Testament makes it very clear. By ourselves, none of us is worthy. By ourselves, we never can be worthy. Our best behavior isn't good enough. 
And behind even our very good behavior lies our self-centered and rebellious heart. The first step to being considered worthy is to admit that we're not worthy. If we were, Jesus wouldn't have come to earth to die. But he did come. He came to offer his life as a sacrifice for our sin. He offered his life in place of ours. And God the Father counted Jesus' life to be a worthy sacrifice. If we admit our sin and rely on Jesus, then in him we are counted worthy. His worthiness becomes ours. And so we can face the resurrection and the life to come with confidence. Jesus is showing that he's not only necessary for living well in this life, he is our only hope for the life to come. He has authority, wisdom, and knowledge with regard to the life to come. We can trust him to bring us safely into God's presence. Jesus is at home in God's presence. He's our inside man when it comes to the future. The future holds no mysteries for Jesus. We can trust him with our future. The Sadducees tried to embarrass Jesus, but they've only been shown their own ignorance. And Jesus points out that they don't even understand Moses, the man that they claim to follow. Verse 37, In the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Jesus' point is very simply that God made great promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By the time Moses stood in front of the burning bush, those three men were long dead. But Moses knew God's promises still had to be fulfilled. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still had to experience that fulfillment. So Moses knew they weren't out of the picture. Yes, they were physically dead, but they were not deleted from the equation. They were not eliminated from God's plans. Moses knew God had a future for them. They would be raised. Moses knew those physically dead men were still very much part of the picture. That's true. Jesus could have gone to other parts of the Old Testament to deal with resurrection. But he wants the Sadducees to see that even though they claim to follow Moses, they are out of step with Moses. Jesus knows Moses better than they do. Verse 39. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. So at this point, every major group among the Jewish leadership has challenged Jesus. And they have all failed. Jesus has shown his authority and their lack of authority. But at this point, he also receives some applause from the crowd. Specifically, we're told from the teachers of the law. Of course, they did believe in resurrection. And so they agree with Jesus on this point. But Jesus is not impressed by their applause. He knows that they're still rejecting him. And he wants them to see that just as the Sadducees don't really understand the Old Testament, so the teachers of the law 
don't understand what the Old Testament says about Jesus. So he goes on in verse 41. And Jesus said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? It seems quite obscure at first reading. But Jesus is simply using the Old Testament to show his own authority. The word Christ translates the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah means God's anointed one. That's the one who the Old Testament promised. That's who the Jews were waiting for. And they often referred to the Messiah as the son of David. They expected him to be a descendant of King David. And they were correct. God had promised to give an eternal kingdom to one of David's descendants. And it's something the New Testament picks up again and again. Back in Luke chapter 1, we were told that Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, was indeed a descendant of King David. And when the angel tells Mary she's going to have a son, the angel says, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. His kingdom will never end. So the Christ, that's the Messiah, would be the son of David. Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of David, promised in the Old Testament. All of that's clear. So what is Jesus' point here? What is he getting at? Well, Jesus agrees that he's a descendant of David. But he wants to make something else clear. He is also David's Lord. In fact, he's Lord of all. He's not just another earthly king with a certain territory to rule over. He rules over everything. And Jesus makes his point by quoting from Psalm 110. That's the psalm we read earlier. Jesus quotes it in verse 42. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In Psalm 110, David is speaking. The first line gets confusing in English. The Lord said to my Lord. But the Hebrew of Psalm 110 makes it clearer. It says literally, Yahweh said to my Lord. (coughs) Yahweh is the personal name of Israel's God. So David is recording a vision or a message he has received from Yahweh. The message from Yahweh is that someone called David's Lord is going to sit at God's right hand. That means he's going to rule with God's authority. And he will rule over all his enemies. Now if we just read Psalm 110 in the context of the Old Testament, it all seems a bit odd. Who is David's Lord? David is the king. He could be higher than the king. But here Jesus says, it's me. I am not only David's son, I'm not only the heir of God's promise to David, I am greater than David. I am his Lord. I am Lord of the greatest king Israel ever had. Why is Jesus making this point? He wants to show these religious leaders that he is Lord of them too. He's Lord of all. God has given him the highest place. 
Everybody is under his authority. Jew and non-Jew. Religious and non-religious. Powerful and powerless. Jesus is Lord of them all. The point for you and me to grasp is that Jesus' relevance goes way beyond the Jewish people. It goes way beyond Israel 2,000 years ago. The Old Testament announced in advance that the Messiah's power would be greater than even the best human ruler. History is the working out of God's promise to put all of Christ's enemies under his feet. The message of verses 41 to 44 is that Jesus is Lord. So the most important issue of your life and my life is this. Are we resisting his lordship or are we embracing his lordship? Are we living in denial of reality, the reality that he is Lord? Or are we enjoying the life we were created for? Life under Jesus' wise, good, and loving authority. Because when this life is over, that will be shown to be the only thing that really matters. Everything we've been reading about has been taking place in the temple in Jerusalem. And after Jesus has made it clear that he is Lord, the last part of our passage shows us the response Jesus is looking for. Verse 45. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplace and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. This is quite familiar to us. Jesus has warned his disciples before not to follow the example of the religious leaders. They have a reputation for being holy men, but it's all just a show. At heart, they're motivated by pride. They love to be popular and respected and elevated. And they take advantage of the weakest and the most vulnerable for their own gain. Jesus says they devour widows' houses. That probably means they use their position of trust to take advantage of widows financially. The Old Testament repeatedly calls God's people to take care of widows. But these religious men are doing the opposite. And even their prayers are a performance. Jesus says, don't follow that kind of example. Don't listen to people who use religion for their own ends. And don't be like them. Pretending to serve God while you're really serving yourself. Jesus says, that kind of hypocrisy might get you somewhere in the short term. But in the end, it will be punished most severely. All of us, are in danger of this kind of self-serving religion. Of course, today it takes different forms. But we all have this magnetic tendency to try to elevate ourselves. Even in our service to God, 
We're drawn to it like little iron filings are drawn to a magnet. We love to be made much of. We love to be well thought of, to feather our own nests. Jesus says, beware of that tendency in yourself. It leads to severe punishment. I think if we sat down and reflected at the end of every day, most days we would find ourselves having to ask God's forgiveness. When we talk to people, do we center on them and their needs? Or do we manage to turn conversations around towards ourselves? Do we find ourselves daydreaming about winning arguments and getting won over on other people? Do we turn over in our minds how we really deserve more recognition for certain things that we do? Do we do things for God or do we do them for appearances? Do we twist the truth to make ourselves look good? Jesus says to us, beware of all that. Turn away from it. How do we do that? Well, at this point, Jesus looks up and he sees the positive example that he's looking for. Look down to chapter 21, verse 1. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Earlier the text mentioned a denarius, a day's wage. Here the NIV has a footnote telling us that these very small copper coins were called lepta. Commentators tell us that 132 lepta made up a denarius. So what the widow puts in is basically pennies. These were the smallest coins available. But, Jesus says, actually she put in more than all the others. Because, verse 4, she put in all she had to live on. These two little coins were it for this lady. Literally, the text says, she put in all her life. The most significant thing about this is that she put in both coins. It's not hard to imagine a person with only two coins might put one of them in the offering. I give half to God because I love him. I keep half for myself for a piece of bread for lunch. But this lady puts them both in. That's it. Everything. She put in all her life. What Jesus sees here is not just a lady putting in two little coins. He sees a lady turning her life and her future over to God. We might say she's being reckless. Jesus says she's trusting God the way we all ought to trust him. Completely. Without looking to anything or anyone else for our security. And the application here is not that we go and empty our bank accounts tomorrow morning. 
The challenge for us is to look to God alone for our security. To imagine that we are standing before God's offering box and to put into that box all our life. How do we do that? Well, our passage has told us Jesus is Lord. He has all we need for this life and for the next. He is fully capable of leading us in the best path. He can be trusted with our lives. The challenge for us is to come to him and say, I do trust you. I have all these dreams about my future, my health, education, job, marriage, a home, a certain standard of living, maybe children, plans for retirement. I take all of those hopes and dreams and I put them in your hands. I trust you with my life. I will trust you to work out the details of my life. I stand before your open arms and I put in all my life. I give back to God what is God's. And making this commitment or this recommitment does not mean that our lives are suddenly going to get easy. You know that. I don't know if this widow got lunch the day she put both her coins in the box. Trusting our lives to Jesus doesn't mean our lives are suddenly filled with health and wealth and happiness. It doesn't mean that our struggles and pain are magically swept away. That's the whole point of trusting him. It means trusting him even when we're lonely and sick. It means trusting him when we don't get the exam results that we wanted, or the place on the course that we wanted, or the spouse or the children that we wanted. Trusting Jesus means trusting him even when our circumstances take us by surprise when they knock us to the ground. Trusting Jesus means accepting that he knows what's going on when we're in the dark. It means accepting that he is in control and that he loves us too because he is Lord. He's Lord of this life and he is Lord of the life to come. We're going to respond to God's word with a song that reminds us Jesus is our tower of refuge and strength. The song is My Jesus, My Savior.